The general looked through his spyglass. The battle had been hard fought. Many young men had died that day, but they had eventually been carried to victory by his leadership, his heroics. It had not been his superior officer who had spurred the men on. That sniveling card had attempted to remove him from his command, but he had showed him who the real leader was. Washington would hear about this. He'd make sure of it this time. He'd finally received the honor and promotion his battlefield actions so rightly deserved, and those of higher rank would no longer look down their noses at him. As he swung his horse around to check his right flank, suddenly his eyes met the barrel of a Hessian musket. The soldier's hands gripped it, quivering. A boy no more than 19. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Welcome to our latest mini-pod season. This season will explore the seven deadly sins, a man who personified each one, and the opposing virtue needed to defeat them. Welcome to Episode 6, The Envy of Benedict Arnold. A sin is an immoral behavior that one performs in direct opposition to virtue. To every good action, there is an evil action. For every virtue, there is a vice. Both forces work against one another in the hearts and minds of mankind for the benefit and destruction of humanity. Stories of history and fiction have clearly revealed the truth that while every man is capable of great virtue, so too is he capable of unspeakable evil. This duality was famously summarized in what is known as the Seven Deadly Sins. First listed by Pope Gregory I in the 6th century, and then further developed by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, the list highlights the key sins in human nature that ultimately lead to destruction and death. This episode's sin is envy. Envy is a deep-seated discontentment with what one has when compared to others. It is a sin that combines feelings of covetousness, jealousy, and selfishness. Although it is something often concealed in the mind, hidden by subtle remarks or passive-aggressive comments, it can eventually give birth to a whole host of other sins. The envious man can never show genuine happiness for the success of others, because he is always left comparing it to himself and questioning its merit, always seeing it as a slight against himself. One of history's most devastating examples of envy is perhaps America's greatest hero turned villain, Benedict Arnold. In this episode, we'll delve into his life as an American patriot during the Revolutionary War, how he rose through the ranks to become one of George Washington's most trusted generals, and how his envy led him to betray the country he had once fought so hard to defend. Born in 1741 in Norwich, Connecticut, Benedict Arnold had a turbulent upbringing. His mother was from a wealthy New England family, but after his father squandered the family estate in a series of bad business ventures, he turned to drink and was an alcoholic for much of Benedict's childhood. Two of his sisters and one brother then died from a yellow fever outbreak while he was in primary school. 
Having an absent husband and dealing with the grief of losing three of her children, Mrs. Arnold sent Benedict to live with his cousins, the Lathrops, who gave him a position in their thriving pharmaceutical business. During the late 1750s, as he was becoming a man, Arnold served in local militias in the French and Indian War, a conflict between the British and French and their various native allies. The conflict was eventually won by the British and it essentially ended the French influence in eastern Canada. Britain was also handed Florida in the treaty settlement. But King George II had borrowed far beyond his means to finance the war, doubling the British national debt in the process. He reasoned that the American colonists gained the most from the victory over the French, as their borders were now secured, and his decision to lay the bill at their feet through burdensome taxation led to another conflict that would make a name for Benedict Arnold. After the deaths of his mother and father, Arnold made his way across the Atlantic to Europe and bought supplies for his own pharmaceutical business. He was eventually tempted into the lucrative transatlantic smuggling operations and set up shop in New Haven. His three merchant vessels smuggled rum, sugar and molasses to the colonies until the British Crown introduced the Stamp Act in 1765. This law levied a tax on the British colonies in America and required many printed materials to be produced on pre-stamped paper with a specific embossed seal. Arnold was directly affected by the tax and with him now a married man with three children, the hit to his bottom line was a heavy blow. Unrest in the colonies continued to grow over the next two years, and British troops were sent to occupy Boston, a key stronghold for colonial patriots. The unrest culminated in an incident on King Street that we now know was the Boston Massacre, where British troops fired into a crowd of violent protesters, killing five. This shocked the public and was the match strike that lit a growing uprising in New England. Militias were formed to directly resist any more British control in the colonies, and after the Royal Navy instituted a blockade of Boston Harbour in June of 1774, it was only a matter of time until a fully-fledged conflict commenced. On April 18, 1775, with British troops approaching, Paul Revere made his famous midnight ride to warn the residents of Concord, Massachusetts and on the 19th war broke out at Lexington and Concord, as both sides engaged in a bloody battle that saw over a hundred killed. In the aftermath, thousands volunteered in militias all over the American colonies. Among them was Benedict Arnold. His life had always been one lived in constant search for honour, and he saw this as a time to prove himself a man. He was a legitimate patriot, he was sick of the British intrusion into the daily livelihoods of the colonists, and as a skilled leader of men in battle, he was awarded the role of captain in the Governor's Second Company of Guards in Connecticut. After the battle at Lexington and Concord, Arnold requested to take his militiamen north to capture the strategic objective of Fort Ticonderoga on the banks of Lake Champlain from the British. Frontiersman Ethan Ellen and his Green Mountain Boys met up with Arnold's militiamen, and as the two groups made plans for the attack on the fort, Arnold butted heads with Allen. Eventually conceding command to Allen, the American forces numbering about 80 silently rode across the lake and attacked the fort during the night of May 10th, 1775. They caught the small British garrison unawares, 
taking the fort after a short battle, and the prize was a large cache of artillery that was vital to the American war effort in the north. But despite the victory, Arnold tasted his first feelings of envy. The frontiersman Allen received all the plaudits, and Arnold was also ignored by James Easton, the man charged with relaying the news of the victory back to Massachusetts. This would become a theme throughout the war, as Arnold was consistently too hot-tempered and was always a step behind those who were more politically astute. In the summer of 1775, his wife died and he moved his children to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Afterwards, with the American plans for the invasion of British-held Canada nearing finality, George Washington chose Arnold to help lead the campaign, promoting him to colonel. With winter fast approaching, Arnold led his detachment of men through the harsh wilderness of New Hampshire and up to the British fort at Quebec. Unbeknownst to Arnold, the letter he had sent en route to Quebec asking for stores of provisions to be procured for his arrival was captured by the British and the letter alerted them to the American advance. He arrived on the frozen St. Lawrence River in late November 1775 with about 600 men who had survived the journey. After this he was reinforced with another 300 men from General Montgomery's troops from Montreal and the siege commenced on December 31st. But although Arnold showed tenacity, even leading his men in an attack during a vicious blizzard up the steep slopes of the fort perimeter, the siege would eventually be a failure. Running out of ammunition, over 400 American troops were forced to surrender and were taken prisoner by the British forces. General Montgomery was killed and Arnold himself received a nasty wound to the leg from a musket ball. Shouting orders from his makeshift infirmary bed, Arnold refused to surrender his men despite being outnumbered 3 to 1. He kept up the siege throughout the winter and into 1776, but by late spring with his men ravaged by smallpox and with fresh British reinforcements sailing down the nigh-thawed St. Lawrence River, Arnold reluctantly withdrew. The British Navy pursued the American ships and Arnold's rearguard defence won him great respect from his men. He somehow managed to fend off a much larger British force and take a few ships down with him before running his own ship aground and fleeing with the Grand Union flag still flying atop the mast. This action prevented the British capture of numerous American-held forts along Lake Champlain. Though he was greeted as a hero upon his arrival back in Cambridge, charges were levied against him for the loss of the 10 American ships during the retreat south from Montreal. He spent much of the winter of 1776 defending himself against the pointing fingers of his rivals within the Continental Army. Many of his peers were promoted to Major General, not due to their heroics and leadership displayed in the war, but due to their political machinations against him. In a letter to George Washington in March of 1777, he wrote, Congress undoubtedly have a right of promoting those whom, from their abilities and their long and arduous services, they esteem most deserving. Their promoting junior officers to the rank of major generals, I view as a very civil way of requesting my resignation as unqualified 
for the office I hold. With the help of Washington, who was ever a fan of Arnold, he finally received promotion to Major General, but his seniority still lagged behind many of his peers, and the slight he felt from the Continental Congress only grew. Even after a commendation from the Commander-in-Chief himself, the Congress stood firm on their decision, and Arnold resigned in the summer of 1777. But after hearing Washington had requested him to be sent to command Fort Ticonderoga before his hasty decision, Arnold retracted his resignation and departed north to command the fort he had helped take two years prior. Arnold, under the command of the higher-ranked General Horatio Gates, led his men against the approaching British and Hessian forces north of Albany, New York, in the Battle of Freeman's Farm. Arnold and Gates became embroiled in a bitter dispute over their battle tactics. After a heated exchange, Gates agreed to allow Arnold to send a portion of their 7,000-strong force from their fortified high ground to meet the British head-on. A major skirmish ensued, and the Americans inflicted heavy casualties on British General John Burgoyne's men. But as the sun set, a series of British bayonet charges pushed the American lines back, and Arnold's men retreated back to the high ground. It was a tactical victory for the British, who now held Freeman's farm, but it was a Pyrrhic one, with their losses double that of the Americans. As Gates wrote his report on the battle to dispatch to Congress, he purposefully left out any mention of Arnold's involvement in the day, and even removed a number of troops from under his command. At this, Arnold flew into a rage. He hurled abuse at Gates in a profanity-laden tirade and accused him of incompetence, leading Gates to formally remove him for insubordination. The two armies sat in camp, licking their wounds and preparing for the inevitable second battle, which took place on October 7th. By this time, the Americans had been reinforced to 12,000 strong, outnumbering the British two to one. Arnold, having been relieved of his command over two weeks earlier, had remained in the American camp. There are conflicting reports on what happened next, but most agree that as the two armies engaged in the Battle of Bemis Heights, also called the Second Battle of Saratoga, Arnold directly ignored Gates' orders to stand down, climbed atop his horse, and spurred the beast into battle. The British forces had two entrenched positions just north of the farm, and seeing the breakdown of the British lines as an opportunity to push on and win a decisive victory, Arnold led his men in an all-out attack. Arnold and his men stormed the Hessian-held redoubt and forced them to retreat. The Americans poured through the enemy lines, and as Arnold looked around, he saw his chance at glory finally achieved. No one could ignore his role in this famous victory, but as he sat perched on his horse atop the enemy position, a musket ball slammed into his leg, and he fell off the side of his horse and was pinned underneath it. As Arnold lay rolling around in agony, clutching the same leg that had been so horribly wounded during the withdrawal from Canada two years earlier, he murmured, The same leg. I wish the ball had passed through my heart. Had this been the case, perhaps Arnold's legacy would have been one of an American hero to be mentioned beside the likes of George Washington, but he did survive his wound, and his story would take a dark turn. 
General Burgoyne's British army surrendered on October 17th. It marked one of the greatest victories in the entire Revolutionary War for the Americans, and a crucial turning point. It also played a vital role in France, officially joining the war against the British. But it was General Gates who received all the glory for the victory, even receiving the sword of the surrendering British general, as Arnold lay in agony in an infirmary fighting to save his leg. As he lay there, disillusionment sank in, and he began to question the whole revolutionary cause. In his eyes, he had been a hero in battle, leading his men to victory on numerous occasions. He had been badly wounded for his trouble twice. He had bled for the American cause, unlike those who now reaped all the glory, like that sniveling Horatio Gates. Arnold questioned everything, and he wondered why he had given so much for the American system that, to him, seemed no less corrupt than the British system. From that moment on, he decided to get his own. To hell with the cause, and those who had profited unjustly from its spoils. In spring of 1778, as the war progressed, and the British were pushed out of Philadelphia, George Washington gave Arnold military governorship of the liberated city. Still recovering, Arnold met Peggy Shippen, and he fell in love with her. At 38, Arnold was 20 years her senior, but the two eventually married and moved into the governor's mansion. Though it is not entirely clear, it is believed the Shippens harbored loyalties to the crown, and some historians have even labeled her a British spy. Whatever the extent of her involvement, it is clear that she was a voice in Arnold's ear in convincing him of the personal gain that would be his should he defect. Benedict, my dear, there are plenty of people who hold you in high regard. I hear many British officers even speak of your bravery and brilliance. I care not for honor now, Peggy. I may never walk without a terrible limp again. No. I deserve compensation for the sacrifices I have made to this infant nation. Sometimes I wonder who respects me more. Our country's leadership, or that of our supposed enemy? This war has become such a nonsense, and you've been passed over for the promotion you deserve a time too many, my love. You know, I had connections with a few British officers whom I met during their occupation of this city. Perhaps your talents and sacrifice would be better appreciated amongst those men. I still have correspondence with a British major by the name of John Andre. Arnold began a secret correspondence with Major Andre, and afterwards Washington awarded him command of the Fort of West Point on the strategic Hudson River, the gateway to Albany, New York. Arnold and Andre eventually set up a meeting to pass on intelligence documents and essentially the key to the fort to the British. But on his return from West Point, Andre encountered trouble. His ship was forced to sail back by American troops and he was forced to depart the fort on foot, armed with a shoddy disguise and a pass from Arnold for safe passage. But Andre was captured by American troops, and after a quick pat-down, the documents from Arnold were discovered in his sock. Also possessing a pass with Arnold's own signature on it, the plot was exposed and the orders were sent to arrest Arnold. But he managed to escape and made his way to British-held New York. Major Andre was less fortunate, 
He was tried as a spy, found guilty, and was executed via the hangman's rope. Arnold's fate was much better. For his defection, he received some £10,000, land in Canada, a British pension, and a military commission as a provincial brigadier general. But though they coveted his switching of sides, the British High Command never fully trusted him. Arnold was never given a vital role in the war, and the British under General Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown in October of 1781. Though New York and Charleston remained in British hands a further two years until the Treaty of Paris was signed, this effectively ended the war. Arnold moved between Canada and England after the war, eventually ending up in London, where he died in 1801. His funeral included no military honours. It has been said that America betrayed Arnold even more than he betrayed America. He certainly had his reasons for his treachery, but at the heart of it all was his struggle with the envy he felt towards those who were awarded the prestige he thought he deserved instead. This envy led to not only an ignominious end to his life, but to the distortion of his legacy from American hero to the archetypal traitor. Benjamin Franklin said of Arnold, Judas sold only one man, Arnold sold three million. The virtue that opposes envy is generosity. The generous individual sees personal success not as something to hold over others, but as something that can be used to their benefit. He practices a feast over famine mentality, believing there is always plenty to go around, and he champions the development of others instead of indulging in schadenfreude, finding pleasure in their misfortune, or allowing feelings of envy to fester when they succeed. As the Greek philosopher Socrates said, envy is the ulcer of the soul. Born for a curse to virtue and mankind, Earth's broadest realms can't show so black a mind. Night's sable veil your crimes can never hide. Each one so great, they glut the historic tide. Defunct your memory will live, In all the glares that infamy can give. Curses of ages will attend your name, Traitors alone will glory in your shame. Almighty justice sternly waits to roll, Rivers of sulfur on your traitorous soul. Nature looks back with conscious error sad, On such a tainted blot that she has made. Let hell receive you riveted in chains, Damned to the hottest of its flames. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by me, Jamie Adams, and edited by Scott Einig, Peggy Shippen Lines by Stacey Adams, an acrostic on Arnold poem read by Scott Einig. Tune in next Monday for episode 7 of our 7 Deadly Sins series, The Sin of Sloth.